Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The deadliest massacre in Thailand's history. The death toll is in the dozens, including more than 20 children. The United States responds to OPEC's oil production cuts. One Democrat lawmaker is calling to boost the U.S. energy sector, while the White House takes a different approach. A secret list of documents seized at Mar-a-Lago was published online, and a court agreed to speed up an appeal by the Biden administration regarding the special master appointment. North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles into the sea on Thursday in the direction of Japan. A U.S. aircraft carrier is in the region. A former policeman killed dozens of people, including more than 20 children, in a knife and gun rampage at a daycare center in Thailand today. He then went home to shoot dead his wife and child and then turned the weapon upon himself, according to police. Mass shootings in Thailand are extremely rare. Authorities say the attacker was dismissed from the force last year over drug allegations. He faced trial and was in court on drugs charges hours before the shooting. That's what a police spokesperson told a local broadcaster, adding that the shooter went to collect his child from the daycare center but opened fire when he didn't find them there. Witnesses told police the gunman also wielded a knife in the attack in the city more than 300 miles northeast of Bangkok. About 30 children were at the center, fewer than usual because of heavy rain, a district official told that to Reuters. Thai Prime Minister Prayuth Chanocha tweeted that the incident was shocking. In 2020, a soldier, angry over a property deal gone sour, killed at least 29 people in a rampage across four locations, including this shopping mall. Gun laws are strict in Thailand, but ownership is high for the region, with many illegal weapons brought in from strife-torn neighbors. And in other news, Democrat Senator Joe Manchin is repeating his calls for the U.S. to increase its energy production. This after the oil-producing countries in OPEC Plus voted yesterday to reduce production in November. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more on Manchin's response. Senator Manchin is once again calling to increase U.S. oil and energy production. This after OPEC Plus decided to slash oil production by 2 million barrels a day starting November. That's more than expected and the largest cut since the pandemic started. In a statement, Manchin said OPEC's decision confirms why the U.S. must be energy independent. So foreign adversaries cannot intimidate us. Manchin writes, we've been blessed with an abundance of domestic energy resources, which we can produce cleaner than elsewhere in the world. And with that, we have the ability to ensure energy independence and security for ourselves and our allies. Manchin also called for Congress to reform the fuel permitting process. Right now, it takes years to permit new fossil fuel ventures. Manchin's reforms would substantially reduce how long it takes to get new fossil fuel ventures up and running. Meanwhile, the White House is criticizing OPEC's decision. Here's what Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters Wednesday. OPEC's decision uh, to cut production's quotas is short-sighted. If there's a meaningful price impact of OPEC's decision, it will particularly be on low- and uh, middle-income countries. She also said President Biden asked the Energy Secretary to look into ways to increase domestic production. The White House also called on energy companies to lower their prices. The gap between wholesale and retail price of gasoline is too wide. Energy companies need to bring down their retail price. 
In response to OPEC's production cuts, the Biden administration is also releasing 10 million more barrels of oil from America's emergency oil supply. The impact of OPEC's cut may be limited since many smaller OPEC producers were struggling to meet previous production targets. Still, rising oil prices could mean inflation stays higher for longer. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. A secret list detailing some of the documents seized from former President Trump was released online. And a court agreed to speed up an appeal from the Biden administration regarding the special master appointment. Here are the details. A secret list detailing some of the documents seized from former President Trump had been ordered by a judge to remain under seal, but the list was released online. The five-page list included specific descriptions of documents seized from Mar-a-Lago that the government has set aside as potentially being protected by privilege. The list was contained in two exhibits that were attached to a document filed in court under seal by the DOJ. The main document was unsealed on Monday on orders from the judge overseeing the case, but he explicitly said the attachments were to remain sealed to protect claims of attorney-client privilege. A Bloomberg reporter obtained the list from the court docket and published it online. She said the exhibits appeared to be inadvertently publicly docketed for a time. As of Wednesday, the exhibits were put back under seal. And also on Wednesday, a U.S. appeals court granted the Biden administration's request to speed up consideration of an appeal of Trump's order that inserted a special master into the record case. The court is now ordering the government to file an initial brief by October 15th. Trump has to respond by November 11th and the government to reply to Trump's response by November 18th. Trump opposed the request, saying it violated federal rules, which gives Appleby's 30 days to respond to principal briefs. The former president spoke at the Hispanic Leadership Conference in Miami on Wednesday, criticizing this investigation and previous ones. The weaponized Department of Justice and the politicized FBI are spending millions and millions of dollars on this continued witch hunt, which started in various forms, all different forms, Russia, 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 impeachment hoax number one, impeachment hoax number two, the Mueller report. He added that the Mueller report investigation found no evidence of Russian collusion. The FBI and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency say they are confident that election infrastructure will not be compromised during the 2022 midterms. Both agencies say there is no indication to suggest cyber activity has prevented someone from casting a ballot or compromised the integrity of the ballot. They said in a joint statement that all elections cyber attacks so far have remained localized and were blocked with little to no disruption to the election process. Neither agency provided an example of how voting may have been manipulated. They also did not explain how they successfully blocked attacks by malicious actors. The statement did acknowledge that some election systems and voter registration information and data could be targeted. The FBI, meanwhile, has been accused of meddling in the 2020 election by Republican lawmakers using whistleblower statements. They accused the Bureau of suppressing damning information about President Joe Biden's family. And the FBI is facing a lawsuit seeking to compel it to publicize conversations it had with Facebook. At issue is a warning the FBI gave the social media giant. That warning prompted Facebook to suppress a story about Hunter Biden's laptop. The lawsuit was filed Tuesday by America First Legal at a Washington, D.C. district court. Mark Zuckerberg acknowledged that Facebook suppressed a New York Post story. 
The story focused on emails that were allegedly recovered from the laptop owned by then-presidential candidate Joe Biden's son. Zuckerberg said the apparent censorship happened after the FBI approached them with warnings about Russian disinformation. Those emails, according to the Post, showed a direct link with President Biden had with his son's dubious business dealings in China and Ukraine. Zuckerberg says the FBI didn't specifically mention the laptop story. However, Facebook thought it fit a pattern the FBI described and decided to limit its reach. And President Joe Biden took a trip to Florida and met with Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday. The president was there to see the aftermath of Hurricane Ian firsthand. He ensured the people of Florida, the federal government, would be there to help them rebuild. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Biden's visit. Biden and DeSantis put differences aside and stood shoulder to shoulder as they met with victims of the hurricane on Wednesday. Everything, this historic, uh, titanic, and unimaginable storm just ripped it to pieces. You got to start from scratch, got to move again. And it's going to take a lot, a lot of time, not weeks or months. It's going to take years for everything to get squared away. Cleanup and rebuilding efforts could cost taxpayers billions of dollars. The president pledged federal aid in Florida for the long haul. We're not leaving until this gets done. People who fled Ian's wrath on Sanibel Island have now been able to return by boat. I'm blown away. This is unbelievable. Pretty much every structure on the island has some level of damage. Florida's governor has ordered the transportation department to get repairs going immediately on the Sanibel Island Bridge and is having linemen airlifted in to restore power. To be able to start surveying the damage and creating a plan for restoration, uh, I will tell you that I was in Sanibel today. You can go over it in a helicopter and you see damage, but it does not do it justice until you are actually on the ground and you see concrete utility poles sawed off right in half, massive power lines everywhere, massive amounts of debris. Part of the federal help Florida will receive for storm aid includes $13 billion over the next five years for highways and bridges. As of Tuesday, close to 400,000 homes and businesses remained without power. According to local officials, the hurricane claimed the lives of at least 120 people when it went crashing across the state. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Not only were thousands of Floridians displaced by Hurricane Ian, so were their pets. Manatee County animal welfare workers are posting pictures of some of the lost or stray pets they've collected. They're hoping the owners will see the photos on their Facebook page to come to retrieve them. Since the hurricane, the agency says they have already returned 13 pets to their owners and adopted out 29 others. Manatee County animal rescue workers say they are still bringing in about 20 animals a day, about double their typical volume. By next Tuesday, 200 animals are expected to be transferred to partner shelters across the country to deal with the overflow. Rescue efforts are underway on Pine Island, Florida in the wake of Ian's rampage, but not just for people, it's for other lives as well. Will Peritino and his family still hold on to their home on Pine Island after Hurricane Ian, caring for a large flock of parrot friends? So we were in the stilt house behind me that's 12 feet off the ground. We had all 275 birds and our two lemurs up there with us. The hurricane collapsed a bridge here, leaving food, gas, and other supplies almost unreachable. Despite evacuation pleas from authorities, the couple was reluctant to give up the birds. 
Among them are some of the world's rarest species. If you're an animal lover, you don't think about yourself first. Just protecting the animals. To convince the couple to leave, volunteers from Project Dynamo are tasked with capturing, caging, and transporting the parrots off the island. Their mission is dubbed Operation Noah's Ark. Uh, today's day five or six of operations. We have a four boat, we have a four boat operation going on today to, uh, to rescue a uh, hundred cages of birds off the island before they die. Hours before the hurricane hit, the keepers herded the birds into their house to shield the flock from the storm. But the destruction of roads has created another problem. They were short on food. Fish and Wildlife was able to get them food two days ago. So we're just going to try to get them all out. And they're going to probably be with us for at least six months to a year, we're projecting, before they'll be able to repair everything at the place they're at now before we can move all the birds back onto the island. One of the rescuers is Ghassan Aboud from Chicago. He's an acquaintance of the sanctuary owners. Upon hearing about their plight, the dentist mustered his own resources to help. We know the, a lot of these parrots are losing habitat in their original country. So maintaining these species in the United States for captive breeding help the survival of these species in the future. A chance encounter led him to Project Dynamo. Like all other dedicated volunteers across the state, the team is wasting no time helping those stranded by this disaster. Dozens of former CIA officers say the agency soft-pedaled its Havana Syndrome investigation. They're testifying to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. It indicates victims may be growing frustrated that the intelligence community still hasn't gotten to the bottom of the mysterious illness. It first surfaced six years ago when a cluster of U.S. government personnel stationed in the Cuban capital city began reporting symptoms consistent with head trauma. Those include dizziness and extreme headaches. Similar symptoms have since come up in U.S. personnel stationed around the world. For three years, the CIA's task force has been investigating if a foreign nation might be carrying out attacks. The investigation is ongoing, but so far they've found little evidence to support the theory or even evidence that the episodes are related. The CIA reportedly began dispersing payments to some victims earlier this year after Congress passed legislation mandating compensation for CIA and government victims. Senate candidate Herschel Walker responds to accusations that he reimbursed a woman for an abortion despite his pro-life stance. It's sort of like everyone is anonymous or everyone is leaking and they want you to confess to something you have no clue about, but it just shows how desperate they are right now. They see me as a big threat, and I know that, and I knew it when I got into this race, but they don't realize that I think they came for the wrong one. They, they energize me. A Daily Beast report says that in 2009, Walker paid fees for an abortion for an unnamed woman. Walker says he doesn't know who the woman is and says the report is a lie. In Georgia's pivotal U.S. Senate race, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker have each sought to cast the other as an abortion extremist. Walker also addressed social media criticism from his son. Christian Walker has stated his troubled by his reports that his father has multiple children with multiple women. Dad Walker's response is that he loves his son unconditionally and that he has written openly about his past mistakes in his book. He also says he believes in redemption, while his Democratic opponent does not. 
A federal judge ruled that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton must testify in a lawsuit. It seeks to block potential criminal charges against abortion providers offering out-of-state abortions. The nonprofits who filed the lawsuit have requested that Paxton clarify previous statements. They were made about the enforcement of Texas's trigger law as it related to out-of-state abortions. They argue that his statements chill their First Amendment rights to speak about and fund abortion care and restrict their ability to facilitate out-of-state abortions. According to an affidavit filed in federal court last week, a process server arrived at Paxton's home to serve him a subpoena to appear at a court hearing. It says the attorney general fled in a vehicle driven by his wife. Paxton disputes that version of events, stating on social media that he left his home to avoid a stranger who was outside his house. He says conservatives have faced threats to their safety and have not been covered in the media. And coming up, a man has been arrested for kidnapping four members of a family. Members were all found dead. We have that and more in just after this break. A man sought in connection with the kidnapping of a California family has been apprehended. Jesus Manuel Salgado is in custody but hospitalized after a suicide attempt. Police are trying to determine if another person is involved in the abduction. Here's more on the story. Four family members, including an eight-month-old baby girl, were found dead on Wednesday after they were abducted from their trucking business in Merced, California. County Sheriff Vernon Warnke confirmed the deaths of the baby, her mother, father and uncle, saying they were found in a rural area after a farm worker alerted authorities. Video surveillance from outside the family's business shows the moment they were taken on Monday morning. A man whose face was obscured by a medical-style mask is seen leading 36-year-old Jasdeep Singh and his brother, 39-year-old Amandeep Singh, away. The suspect appears to be holding a firearm and the victim's hands are zip-tied. After driving the men away in a pickup truck, he returns to take 27-year-old Jasleen Kaur and her daughter away. The suspect, Jesus Manuel Salgado, is in custody but is being hospitalized after a suicide attempt. Police are trying to determine if another person is involved. Authorities took Salgado into custody after the family's ATM card was used at a nearby bank. While a motive is not yet known, Sheriff Warnke said it may have involved money. The wider family has been notified about the deaths. After more than half a century of investigation, the remains of a Pennsylvania teenager are finally identified. 14-year-old Joan Diamond went missing in June 1969. The mystery of her whereabouts went on for decades until authorities were notified in 2012 that remains were found in a coal mining operation. Researchers shows the victims was a young female who appeared to have been dead since the 1960s. Samples from the body were sent to a national database, but state police couldn't find a match until March of this year. Officials are now calling on the public to provide any leads on the person responsible for the death. A new investigative documentary takes a closer look at what's happening on the southern border and who's possibly controlling it. We hear from the reporter behind the project. Joining us now is Joshua Phillips, senior investigative journalist at the Epic Times and host of Crossroads. Great to have you on the show today, Josh. Hey, it's a real pleasure being here. Let's get right into it. What prompted the Epic Times to take a closer look at what's happening on the U.S. southern border? Was it the news stories or President Biden's DHS disciplining horse-mounted border agents, or was it something else? 
Well, you know, when I first went to the U.S.-Mexico border, I actually was originally interested in finding out whether the government was working together with the human traffickers. Uh, what I found was actually something entirely different. I did not anticipate finding what I found. And frankly, it shocked me. Uh, what I found was that in some areas, you don't even have the cartels. In fact, one of the main areas where I went over to the Mexico side, uh, the cartel does not have a presence, which is why a lot of migrants and illegal aliens do choose to cross there. And when I was over there, I found something pretty shocking, which you start picking up folders. There's identifying documents all, all over the ground. And these folders have United Nations logos on them. And this was just tying all the pieces together, because what I've been told through this whole thing is that basically the United Nations is running the border crisis. I looked into it, and sure enough, this is the case. I say it on their own website. The International Organization for Migration gets funding from the U.S. State Department to operate the U.S. migrant crisis. This whole thing is a big sham. This is a manufactured crisis, and we're being lied to about the real nature of it. That really is a shocking discovery, and we're so glad to have you have your boots on the ground there. Now, the documentary notes how migrants are being funneled into the United States through non-governmental organizations. What kind of groups would benefit from this? Well, you know, so I, I was looking into the, the uh, NGOs. Some of them, it looks like they get money for it. And these are groups like, the, you, I guess I wouldn't normally expect to be involved with this. It's groups like Catholic Charities. There's, the, you know, Hebrew groups. There's all kinds of religious organizations involved with it. Then there's a lot of just kind of politically aligned organizations involved with it. What is happening is this. These groups are being used as the proxies through the UN group. Uh, again, the uh, International Organization for Migration. The IOM is not getting directly involved with all the stuff. Some of the stuff they are, like further down south in Panama, especially the big tents and everything like that. Uh, but these groups are working as proxies on the U.S. side of the border, especially, and they're the ones busing people all across the country. Now, in terms of what is their interest, aside from maybe getting a lot of money out of it, uh, which they do, uh, the only thing I can think of is, of course, there's, there's, of course, a lot of political interest. Democrats, of course, were the originally the party against illegal immigration. They used to be the party that supported, for example, the unions and so on, which did not want to be flooded with low and you know low low wage workers who would put them out of business. That changed during Obama when they found that about 80 percent of Latin Americans are voting Democrat, and they threw the borders wide open after they found that. Well, thanks for breaking down this timeline. Now, Border Deception notes how criminal cartels could be involved in what's happening at the border. What part do you believe they play in this? Well, the criminal cartels do definitely play a role. Uh, it's not actually just the Mexican cartels. You actually have human traffickers from all over the world. Uh, for China, that would be, for example, the snakeheads tied in with the Chinese mafia, the triads. Definitely, you go to some parts, and people have to get wristbands. Uh, that show that you paid. If you don't pay, they kill you. The cartels are using children uh, basically to plant them with groups to traffic them into the country. Those children are being abused. They are being trafficked and so on. And when they started DNA testing them, uh, it was the Democrats, actually, who tried to frame this as you know parental separation, separation from children. Yeah, like 30% of them were not the real parents. The cartels, what they're doing is they go to, they go to people's homes in Latin America. And I've been told this by people, you know, Mexicans in, in Latin America. They go to the homes of these people. They tell them, give me your child. I'll, I'll bring him to America. If the parents refuse, they cut the kid's throat in front of the parents, from what I've been told. 
And that does just sound gruesome. Well, we do really appreciate your expert analysis and your firsthand experience. Joshua Phillip, senior investigative journalist at the Epic Times, thank you for your time today. Hey, real pleasure. Thank you. Only five years of probation for a former tech worker who's convicted for the massive hack of Capital One Bank after pleading mental illness. Paige Thompson hacked into networks of over 30 entities and obtained the personal information of over 100 million people. The data breach forced Capital One to reach a tentative $190 million settlement with affected customers on top of an $80 million fine. Thompson also planted cryptocurrency mining software on the hacked servers and collected the generated income. The hacker was arrested in July 2019. On Tuesday, the judge sentenced Thompson to five years of probation, which includes location and computer monitoring. The judge noted that time in prison would be particularly difficult because of being transgender and having mental health issues. U.S. Attorney Nick Brown said, quote, Thompson's hacking did more than $250 million in damage to companies and individuals and that the cyber crimes, quote, created anxiety for millions of people who are justifiably concerned about their private information. Brown says the crime deserves a more significant sentence. The judge scheduled another hearing to determine the amount of restitution Thompson must pay to victims. And in other news, Goodwill now has an online shop. The nationwide secondhand chain launched the site goodwillfinds.com. Goodwill has been around for 120 years with about 3,300 stores in the U.S. and Canada, but the new website is essentially the organization's first centralized online presence. Goodwill says shoppers can browse a curated selection of hundreds of thousands of items. That includes secondhand women's, men's, and kids' clothing, books, specialty and collector's items, and home decor. Anyone in the world can shop on goodwillfinds.com, but net proceeds from purchases go back to the region the item was sourced from. The goal is to fund community-based programs across the U.S. And at least 20 people are killed and two wounded after an attack yesterday at a local government office in Mexico. The attacks occurred in the town of San Miguel Totolapan in the state of Guerrero. According to the State Department, the town's mayor and his father, a former mayor, were both killed. Bullet holes blanketed the facade of the government building. The mayor was in the middle of a meeting when gunmen opened fire from the main square. Violence has spiked in Guerrero over the past decade. This is due to a growing number of criminal gangs. The gangs are competing for control over crops of opium poppies and for drug trafficking routes. A state lawmaker was also shot dead outside a pharmacy yesterday in another Mexican state. And the price of tortillas has risen in Mexico, making tacos less affordable. It's because the key ingredient, corn, is in short supply due to the war in Ukraine and droughts in other countries. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the shortage of this crucial grain. Customers line up to place their orders at this tortilla stand in Mexico City. Tortillas are one of the most basic staples of Mexico, the heart of traditional foods like tacos. But prices are rising as ingredients get more expensive. In Mexico City, the cost of around two pounds of tortillas has risen from 90 cents in December to around a dollar and 10 cents or more today. From one minute to another, the product prices rise. Everything is more expensive. In the last semester, the electricity bill increased, the water bill increased too, and that affects the client's pockets because the basic products have increased. And therefore, when people come to buy tortillas, they ask, why in such a short period of time has the price escalated that much? 
Ukraine is a key producer of grains, including corn, the main ingredient of tortillas, and the conflict has disrupted this crucial supply chain. Other suppliers have also faced problems. Crops have been lost. I remember at that time in Brazil and many parts of South America, the amount of corn expected was not produced. The same happened in the United States. In some parts, there was a drought. But the matter of Ukraine mainly is that it stops exports, it stops production. Taquerias around the country are feeling the financial squeeze. Luis Carlos Polo hopes his customers will continue to eat at his restaurant. But he's gotten some complaints recently about raising prices. We have to get ahead with the little money that comes in. To get ahead and here, we always try to give our best, provide the best service to our clients so they come back. Although sometimes they get annoyed because we have no choice but to increase the taco price. There is no end in sight to the price rises, and tortillas could become more and more unaffordable. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, South Korea attempts to build itself into a defensive powerhouse. The country just made a major equipment sale to Poland. And an avalanche in the Indian Himalayas has struck a group of mountaineers. At least 10 people are dead and more are missing. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles into the sea on Thursday in the direction of Japan. That's after the return of a U.S. aircraft carrier to the region and a U.N. Security Council meeting in response to the North's recent launches. Another day, another North Korean missile test. This time, South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff detected two short-range missiles fired into the sea off the Korean peninsula on Thursday. Pyongyang tried to reframe the test as a reaction against what it called serious threats to stability on the peninsula from the U.S. Its foreign ministry on Thursday accused Washington of ratcheting up tensions by sending the aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan to the region. Following the North's test, South Korean leader Yoon Suk-yeol pledged to beef up ties with the U.S. and Japan to ensure his country's security. He said he would speak to his Japanese counterpart, Fumio Kishida, over the phone on Thursday. Kishida told reporters Pyongyang's latest launch, its sixth in nearly two weeks, cannot be tolerated. Japan's defense chief Yasukazu Hamada also condemned North Korea. These actions by North Korea are a threat to the peace and security of our country, region and the international community, and it's absolutely unacceptable. Tensions escalated after Pyongyang launched an intermediate-range missile over Japan on Tuesday. In response to the North's provocations, the U.S. held joint missile drills and fighter jet exercises with Japan and South Korea. China and Russia blamed these displays of military force for provoking the North's ballistic missile tests at a U.N. Security Council meeting on Wednesday, drawing fire from U.S. envoy Linda Greenfield-Thomas. Firstly, the United States and the ROK carry out defensive military exercises responsibly and consistent with international law. Ballistic missile launches by the DPRK are unlawful. They're reckless and they endanger neighbors in the region. And there's no equivalency between these two activities. 
China and Russia, both permanent members of the Security Council, declined holding a public council meeting on North Korea. The U.S. accused both of enabling North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. South Korea's president has ambitious plans for the country to become a defense powerhouse. That's by being one of the world's top suppliers of weapons. Seoul has already started taking steps towards that goal with a recent deal it made with Poland, its biggest ever, to supply the country with almost a thousand tanks, dozens of fighter jets, and hundreds of pieces of artillery. Here's more on the country's growing industry. This is the ultimate sales pitch. A highly choreographed attack on a hillside in the South Korean countryside. K2 tanks, K9 howitzers, Apaches and drones. A combined assault, all for show. For a near 2,000 strong audience, generals, government officials and potential buyers from more than two dozen countries around the world. Fresh from South Korea's biggest ever weapons export to Poland, estimated to be worth some $15 billion, according to officials. South Korea's weapons manufacturers are now emboldened by President Yoon Suk-yeol's pledge that his country will become the world's fourth biggest weapons exporter. Trying to achieve number four is not going to be an easy task, but it's something to go after. On the southeast coast of the country in the city of Changwon, Hyundai Rotem is assembling and testing K2 tanks before shipping. It's sending almost 1,000 to Poland. A deal with a NATO country at a time when Ukraine, financed and equipped by NATO countries, is fighting Russia's invasion is significant. The company believes its K2 tanks, cheaper than its rivals, are a good choice for price and performance. Our K2 is continuously being upgraded and produced. Countries that buy the tank have the advantage of continuing to operate and maintain the weapon at an affordable price. Five minutes down the road is Hanwha Defence, boasting multi-billion dollar deals with nine countries, including Poland and Australia. It's now setting its sights on the United States, pitching its K-9 howitzer and K-10 ammunition resupply vehicle. Production is at a maximum. This plant alone can produce up to 100 K-9 howitzers a year, among other weapon systems. We're told they also had a stockpile ready to go, an ability to deliver systems quickly is key at this volatile time. Hanwha says their main strategy is not just to sell their technology, but to share it long-term with the customer. We want a long-term partnership in their country. It is our main strategic focus in entered, to enter their market. One advantage South Korea has, according to the experts, experience in building fighting machines for extreme weather, tough terrain and tricky neighbours. The North Korean threat uh, has given us a good reason, a motivation to make sure that our weapons are very good. South Korea is a highly militarised country. A country still technically at war with North Korea, a peace treaty was never signed, and with a mandatory military service still in place for men. A mountaineering team in the Indian Himalayas was caught in an avalanche on Tuesday. At least 10 people died and dozens are still missing. Videos on social media captured the moment the huge wave of snow rolled down. 
The team consisted of 34 trainees for high-altitude navigation and seven instructors. When the avalanche struck, the group was descending from a peak at an altitude of over 18,000 feet. Fourteen people have been rescued and sent to the hospital. The Indian Air Force is searching for other survivors. Indo-Tibetan Border Police said the rescue will continue for several days. According to officials, this is the first time in India that such a large number of trainee climbers were killed in an avalanche. And just ahead, Sweden suggests the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was sabotaged by detonations. Both Sweden and Denmark are conducting investigations. And the Dutch turn to coal and wood to heat their homes as winter approaches. The alternative heating methods are meant to counter skyrocketing gas bills. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. Suspicions of sabotage on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea have strengthened following an investigation. Swedish and Danish authorities have been investigating four leaks that were discovered last week. The leaks were found in Swedish and Danish exclusive economic zones. Swedish security police say there were detonations near Nord Stream 1 and 2 resulting in extensive damage to the pipelines. They said some material was seized on site that would be analyzed. They added that the investigation will show whether anyone can be suspected and prosecuted of a crime. A Kremlin spokesperson on Thursday said he did not think the investigation could be objective without Russia's participation. Danish police declined to comment on the part of the investigation occurring in the Danish exclusive economic zone. And Poland is seeking reparations from Germany for the damage caused during World War II. The foreign minister laid out the details in a diplomatic note signed this week. The letter asks for some $1.3 trillion for the consequences of occupying Nazi German forces. Poland is now awaiting a response from Germany in accordance with diplomatic rules. The German foreign minister was in Poland already for talks with her Polish counterpart. Ahead of the trip, she said the two countries share a responsibility to preserve common trust. And Germany acknowledges the suffering that it once inflicted on Poles, yet she added the issue of wartime reparations is over from Berlin's point of view. Poland's minister replied that they are still counting on good cooperation with the German government, and he's confident that Berlin's position will evolve. Railway workers in the U.K. have walked off the job again as disputes over jobs, pay, and conditions worsen. Members of the drivers' union, Oslef, and the TSSA union staged fresh action on Wednesday, leading to the cancellation of train services across the country. Picket lines formed outside railway stations as union leaders said the long-running dispute remains deadlocked. The Oslef General Secretary said train drivers in England face a third year without a pay raise, pointing out deals achieved in Scotland and Wales. The TSSA is also planning action on Thursday, Friday and Saturday, while members of the RMT union will strike on Saturday. The director of industry operations for the rail delivery group said these strikes disrupt passengers and businesses and the continued action will only further damage the railway's recovery. And over in France, some gas stations are out of service amid strikes at the country's oil refineries. About 12 percent of the gas stations are experiencing shortages. In one northern region bordering Belgium, as much as 30% of the gas stations are experiencing shortages. That region is also banning the sale of gas and diesel in portable containers. Union members at French oil company Total Energies have been staging a walkout since late last month. 
It has disrupted operations at two of their refineries and two storage facilities. Two ExxonMobil refineries have faced similar problems since late September. The trade union is demanding a 10% pay raise to help catch up with soaring inflation. Outrages in France's refining sector are creating uncertainty in the refined oil trade. The Dutch are turning to more traditional heating methods as the weather becomes cold. Some are opting for coal and wood as gas bills skyrocket. And today's Andrew Thomas has more. At this coal warehouse, customers are looking to cut spending on heating. They're also worried that commercial energy supplies may run out amid the war in Ukraine. Since September last year, our turnover has more or less exploded. We only serve households in the Netherlands, so only people who want to warm up their houses. And we have really seen a very large growth in that market. Some energy bills in the Netherlands have doubled. It's threatening to push up to a million people into poverty. Gas prices, of course, have skyrocketed. In addition, people are really afraid that at some point gas will no longer be available. And that's what people are looking for, alternatives. The moment you have coal stocked, you know where you stand and you can at least heat your home. For decades, the Netherlands' owned domestic gas supply heated millions of homes and supplied other EU countries. But its largest natural gas field is being cut off entirely due to the risk of earthquakes. A company called Passion for Pellets sells a range of different wood-burning furnaces. According to a saleswoman, demand has more than doubled. Yes, sales have increased tremendously since the summer already. In summer, we usually don't sell much, but the summer was really busy and it just more than doubled. These furnaces are most sought after by those with particular kinds of homes. Our most grateful customers are those with larger, older, detached houses, which often have higher ceilings, which are a bit less well insulated, which they cannot insulate that much better either. Heating up those kinds of houses is almost not affordable with gas. Coal and wood burning is up to 90% less efficient than gas, more environmentally damaging, and poses a greater health risk. But environmental and health concerns are falling by the wayside as people grapple with soaring energy bills. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And over in Finland, Finnish and Swedish fighter jets are taking part in a major military exercise. This is to maintain and develop the country's air defense readiness. All of Finland's Air Force units are taking part in the exercise. It started on Monday and will continue until Saturday, October 8th. This is the Finnish Air Force's main exercise this year. In total, the exercise will involve around 3,700 personnel, including 2,400 reservists. It will also involve around 50 aircraft, the majority of them being F-A-18 Hornet fighter jets, Hawk jet trainers, Air Force transport aircraft, an Army transport helicopter, and fighter jets from the Swedish Air Force will also take part. The aircraft will operate out of several locations across the country. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, locals in Naples are making a network of hidden catacombs. The tombs and tunnels feature a wealth of little-known culture, art, and architecture. Records made from sugar. A British company is trying to replace ordinary vinyl records and do its part to protect the environment. Stay tuned for more on that when we return.
Good to have you back with us. In Naples, Italy, a network of hidden catacombs features a wealth of little-known culture, art, and architecture. And today's Andrew Thomas has the details on how a group of locals is ensuring their preservation. The social cooperative La Peranza includes local archaeologists, restorers, and art historians. They have devoted themselves to studying and restoring the frescoes and mosaics in the catacombs of San Gennaro. La Paranza was officially born in 2006 when we founded the social cooperative. But in fact, it was a path we started years earlier. While we were hanging out in the spaces of Santa Maria, we were asking ourselves what could we do? Since we grew up in Naples, what could we do in our city? Visitors can admire wonders from the early Christian age to the 20th century as they walk through the catacombs. La Paranza involves the whole community in the process with the aim of boosting the catacombs both socially and economically. We are a social cooperative. I always highlight this. A social cooperative uses the places to recuperate people. It is not the other way around. The group prizes local knowledge above academic qualifications. We rejected people with master's degrees in archaeology, art historians, and people that spoke four languages, because maybe they know all the knowledge of the world, but don't know how to communicate it. Or maybe they know how to communicate, but in a cold and distant way. La Peranza projects have employed 44 people so far. In 2019, they attracted 160,000 visitors. We've always had, at all times and no matter what, a special consideration, and I say so openly, for the people living in the neighborhood, because we believe that the best promoters of an area are the people living inside that area. A tourism boom is helping La Peranza and a network of small artisans. The group has also set up training courses and networking events for people in the area. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A company in the UK aims to replace traditional records made from vinyl. The developer says they are on track to help decarbonize the music business. Here's a look. For all its sound and texture, this is not a regular record that's made from vinyl. UK-based developer Evolution Music is taking a transformative stab at the whole record industry. So four years of R&D, um, we, we started with a, a sugar-based biopolymer. Uh, we found organic fillers and organic master batch, so we've got a unique recipe. The recipe is designed to replace harmful plastics in records production. But there is another perk. Record pressing plants won't need to change existing machinery or production processes. This will make it easier for labels and artists to embrace the shift. You know, the production of vinyl is toxic in very many ways. There are all kinds of processes in it that are damaging to the environment. But we like vinyl. What's the solution? Find a non-toxic way of doing it. Hey presto, here we have it. If we could apply that logic to other processes, then we'll be in a much better position. The music recorded with this new plastic boasts a unique texture. Sonically, and, and the EQ of the music is fine, absolutely spot on. But the little bit of lead in and in between the tracks, there's some surface noise. So if you like that, if you have a 70s fan, and you like that little crackling, great. Despite the popularity and instant access to digital media, vinyl record sales have been growing for the past decade. The richer sound, cover art, and the ability to hold them in hands helped increase the emotional appeal of vinyl. That's what inspires Evolution Music to continue working on the product. You know, the music industry, the creative arts, should be at the forefront of innovation. Of course they should. And, and typically, that's where cultural, you know, cultural change is what affects political and social change. The company believes change is coming. 
All it takes is for a major recording artist or band to opt to use bioplastic instead of vinyl. Still to come, a small Australian town is open for dinosaur fossil hunting, a chance for average folks to leave their mark on the history of science. Details to come on NTD News Today. A Chinese vase has been sold at an auction for $8.8 million following a bidding war, but initially it was only expected to fetch under $200,000. The vase is known as a celestial sphere vase because of its shape. It was auctioned in France last Saturday. 300 people showed interest in bidding. The auction house eventually allowed 30 bidders to take part. The vase once belonged to a grandmother who had passed away. She was a keen art collector and had the vase for 30 years. While an expert dated the vase to the 20th century, collectors say they believe it was a very rare piece from the 18th century. The final buyer, who has yet to be identified, is Chinese. And a small town in Australia is hosting a dinosaur fossil dig, and it's not just scientists making discoveries. Let's have a look. In the outback of New South Wales, volunteers are trained by paleontologists to sift through opal mine tailings. They're scouting for the bones of a sauropod, a herbivorous dinosaur thought to have roamed here 100 million years ago. So we train them about what to look for, and then they sit and they're constantly making discoveries and you hear the cry of bone. The first pieces of this dinosaur were only recently discovered in the area. The dig was organized by the Australian Opal Centre, with participants from around the country and even abroad. So that is the bone from inside the toe of a little herbivorous dinosaur. Like this toe bone, any special finds were kept by the center for further research. Key finds on precious digs have changed the course of people's lives. My first year here, which was uh, 2014, um, I found a dinosaur tooth. And from that moment on, I was kind of like, this is what I, I want to study. It's a case of tiny pieces in a very large puzzle. The hunt can take days and not always yield a find, but being part of a scientific discovery is exciting in itself. I don't necessarily have to find it myself. If someone at the table or someone over there finds something, I get just as excited. Chances are a small discovery could explain Australia's prehistoric past. Do you know your blood type? Scientists say everyone should in case of a life-threatening event that results in a need for a blood transfusion. But now they've discovered a new group of rare blood types. The new group is called the ER blood group. According to the journal Blood, there are a total of five ER blood types based on genetic variations. When blood types are incompatible, immune cells attack the mismatched cells called antigens. The ER antigen was discovered years ago, but this study is the first to describe its different mutations. Experts say while it may be rare, it could be important for physicians and nurses to pay attention to if they are having trouble diagnosing their patient. With an ATM, cash withdrawals can be made almost anywhere in the world, even on a mountaintop over 15,000 feet above sea level. Kunjarab Pass seems like an unlikely place for a cash machine. Located on Pakistan's northern border with China, this pass is the highest paved crossing in the world. The steep peaks of the Karakaram Mountains 
boast spectacular views, attracting the most adventurous tourists. In the middle of the remote highland, an iconic ATM has been serving a handful of residents, travelers, and border workers since 2016. This Guinness World Record-setting machine is fully functional. It's powered by solar and wind energy and available for cash withdrawals and money transfers. Officials say in an average of 15 days, more than $17,000 can be withdrawn. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.